This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. So we've been talking about specific settings and uses for stories, different scenarios in which stories can help us to communicate the truth. And this week we're going to be looking at using stories to share the gospel with others. So let's have a word of prayer together and then we'll dive in with a story from scripture. Father, thank you for the good news that we have, the gospel. Thank you for uh, the rich truth of the gospel. Thank you for the chance that we know that truth uh, both in our minds but also because uh, we've experienced it uh, through coming to you, coming to Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us to have a burden, have a passion to share the gospel with others. And as we consider this from the perspective of stories tonight, help us see how stories can be a help to us as we share the gospel and uh, help, our, help our perspective there, just to be in line with your word and to be uh, effective for your glory. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two men who cut very different figures. The older man is dressed plainly in the clothing of a commoner. Uh, he looks unkempt, surely because of the years that he has spent as a prisoner of the state. He entered this room flanked by armed guards, while the younger man, about 20 years his junior, entered surrounded by attentive courtiers. The younger man is dressed sumptuously, like a Roman with impeccable taste. He has an easy manner, he oozes pride as he takes his place at the head of the room and prepares to hear what this lowly prisoner has to say for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, the prisoner begins. Despite his lowly position at the feet of the king of Judah, uh, Judea, this prisoner's eyes are not cast downward. He holds eye contact with the king as he respectfully addresses him. I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. The prisoner is respectful, but he's not timid. As King Agrippa and his sister Bernice listen attentively, Paul begins to tell his story. He tells the king about his strict Jewish upbringing and education, and then he brings up the troublesome topic that led to his arrest, the resurrection, specifically the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you, he asks Agrippa, that God should raise the dead? Paul continues his story, explaining that he was once an opponent of Jesus as well. He fiercely opposed the belief that Jesus had risen from the dead, even sought to imprison Christians. He served as a witness at their trials, helping to see them condemned and executed. And then Paul explains, one day, having exhausted the Jewish cities and beginning to seek out believers in the Gentile cities surrounding them, Paul found himself nearing the Syrian city of Damascus when an encounter happened that fundamentally altered the trajectory of his life. At midday, O king, he says, I saw in the way a light from heaven, above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me, and them which journeyed with me. 
And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. That is how Paul met Jesus. He goes on to recount his conversation with Jesus as he learned of his God-given task. He is to share with others the truth that he himself receives from God. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Paul tells Agrippa how he obeyed God and how trouble soon followed. He went from being the hunter to the hunted and soon found himself fleeing for his life from the Jews that he had so recently called his friends and allies. But as he stands before Agrippa, king of Judea, Paul boldly affirms that he has preached none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. Called upon to address a king, Paul's message is simple. He tells his story, how he met Jesus, how his life was changed. In doing this, Paul turns the attention of Agrippa and Bernice, and also all of the other officials and servants who were gathered to hear him that day, he turns their attention to another story, the greatest story of all time. That story is one that Paul knows is familiar to Agrippa, though Agrippa was only a child when the drama unfolded. Paul points Agrippa to the story of Jesus. It's hard to tell from Scripture whether he was in jest or he was sincere when he said this, but Agrippa admitted to Paul that he made him consider Christ. He told Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Agrippa and Bernice did not receive Paul's message that day, but surely his words echoed in their minds and hearts long after causing them to continue to think about a lowly Jewish carpenter who had been executed for blasphemy and a lowly Jewish preacher who had been imprisoned for affirming that that Jewish carpenter had risen from the dead. Paul's story and the story of Jesus no doubt continued to echo in their minds long after their face-to-face encounter with Paul. You know, back in Acts 9, God had told a Christian in Damascus named Ananias that Paul would be a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. True to the divine promise, here in Acts 26, Paul is given the chance to address royalty. And he makes the most of this gospel opportunity by telling stories. Anyone with experience sharing the gospel is going to realize that stories serve an important function in effective evangelism. And that's what we're going to explore tonight. I want to begin with what may or may not be an obvious point to you, and that's the simple fact that the gospel is a story. What is the gospel? Well, the way that we often think of communicating the gospel is very propositional. Okay, it's all about 
the logical progression of thought, the building of one truth on another. So, uh, man is a sinner. God must judge sin. The just punishment for sin is death. Death means eternal punishment. The only escape from eternal punishment is the forgiveness of sin. The forgiveness of sin is available as a free gift from God. If you receive that free gift, you will live forever with God in heaven. Is any of what I just said wrong? Those things are all true. Those things are all biblical realities. And they're important truths for us to understand, even for those of us who already know Christ. Those are important truths for us to come to grips with and continue to think on. In fact, the more deeply we understand those gospel realities, the richer our salvation appears to us. And I don't mean to suggest that any of those truths are unimportant or unessential to the Christian faith. But as we think about the gospel, I think that sometimes we have a skewed view of what the gospel really is. At its heart, the gospel is a story. The only place that I'm aware of in Scripture where any kind of definition is given for the gospel is in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is writing there in 1 Corinthians 15, and he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. So Paul is saying, I have already preached to you the gospel, but now I am re-declaring it to you. All right? I am declaring to you now the gospel that I've already preached. And he goes on. Here it is. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. So Paul is saying, this is the message, this is the gospel that I've declared unto you. What is it? What is at the heart of what he's sharing here? It's the death burial and resurrection of Christ and then he adds on the confirmation of those facts by eyewitnesses so what's at the heart of the gospel from Paul's perspective the death burial resurrection of Jesus Christ Mark began his book of the Bible with these words the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of God he calls it the gospel of Jesus Christ so Mark is saying, I'm sharing in this book the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is that book? What is the book of Mark? Well, it's the story of a man named Jesus. We get the story of Jesus with some variations in emphasis and content four times at the beginning of our New Testament. And what do we call those four mini-biographies of Jesus? The four Gospels. So the Gospel is a story. The Gospel is the story of Jesus. Now, yes, those other truths are important for us to understand in order to explain the significance of Jesus' story. So if you don't understand what the Bible teaches about sin, you're not going to understand what it means that Jesus died for our sins. 
And so those other truths are necessary to explain the significance of the, of the story of Jesus. But at its heart, the gospel is that story. That is the essence of the gospel. And those other things are necessary truths for us to understand what that gospel means and what it truly is. Now, we see this fact that the gospel is a story throughout the book of Acts. Um, as we get to the book of Acts, you've got the, the life of Jesus in the, in the uh, gospel records. And then you get to the book of Acts, and this is the followers of Jesus seeking to go out and share his message. They're beginning to broadcast the gospel. And as they seek to put into words the message that is at the heart of their faith, we see a profound emphasis on the person of Christ. So consider Philip in Acts 8. Philip is one of the original seven deacons that were chosen in Jerusalem. Uh, but in chapter 8, we find him making the trek to Samaria. There has been persecution come on the believers in Jerusalem, and so he makes his way to Samaria, and he goes to the city of Samaria, which is the capital of the region that goes by the same name, and in that city, he preaches. But what does he preach? Acts 8, 5, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. So his message can be summed up in one word, Christ. He's preaching the gospel, and that directly translates to preaching Christ. Later in the same chapter, the setting's very different, but the messenger is the same. We see again Philip sharing the gospel. This time he's sitting in a chariot with an Ethiopian official who is reading the prophetic writings of Isaiah, and he's struggling to understand their significance. And in God's providence, as Philip looks at what the man has been reading, that scroll is open to Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 describes a man who is led like a sheep to the slaughter. A man who is denied justice. A man who is seemingly left without an heir as his life is snuffed out. And the Ethiopian asks Philip to whom Isaiah is referring. Then Philip, Acts 8.35 tells us, opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Again, what is the summary of the message that Philip is sharing? And of course, as, as we get to the end of the story, we see that this Ethiopian man has received Christ as Savior. He says, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And he says, do you believe with all your heart? And he says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And Philip goes and baptizes him as a sign that he's truly trusted in Christ. What is the, the word that Scripture uses to sum up the message of Philip to this man? Jesus. Philip is just one scriptural example. We find again and again as these early believers are sharing the good news that they're majoring on the person of Jesus Christ. Going right along with that, they're also emphasizing the work of Christ. You know, it's fascinating to try to consider every time we see the gospel shared in the book of Acts. We're obviously not going to take the time to do that tonight. But it is a really interesting thing to consider. Try to go through the book of Acts and look at the different people who shared the gospel and look at the different methods they used, uh, what, how the message differed from one time to another, or even the same person sharing the gospel, how with one, with one group they would share it one way, with another group they'd share it another way. 
But with all of those different methods, the different words that were used, the different approaches that were taken, there's one thing that's always central, and that's the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Acts 4, Peter and John are standing before a collection of prominent Jewish leaders because they've done a terrible thing. Peter has been the tool used by God in the healing of a lame man. And now, he and John must answer for their actions. In his address to these honored officials, Paul pulls no punches. He says, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. What does Peter talk about? He talks about the work of Christ. We see this too in the ministry of Paul. In Acts 17, we get a summary of the way that Paul preached. He, he developed this pattern as he went out and preached in different cities where he would go into the synagogue first and he would preach to the Jews. He'd share the message with them. Well, in Acts 17, it, it gives us kind of a summary of what those messages looked like as he would preach to those Jews in the synagogue. Here's what we have in Acts 17, 1 through 3. Now when they, that's talking about Paul and Silas, uh, this is what we would call uh, Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. So what was the, the heart of Paul's message? It was the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus and his identity as Christ, or the anointed one. That was the heart of Paul's message. And Paul shared that message everywhere he went. So we need to understand this as we think about sharing the gospel with other people. Oops, I already got there. The gospel is a story. It's the story of the God-man Jesus Christ. That is at the heart of the gospel message. So as we think about sharing the gospel message with others, I, I, I don't think our mind immediately needs to go to the, the bullet points. We need to say, what do I need to share with this person? I need to share with them the story of Jesus Christ. I need to introduce them to the person of Christ. That's what sharing the gospel at its heart is really all about. And those truths that explain to us the person and work of Christ, those come along with it as we're sharing the truth. As we share the fact that Christ died, we can share with people the significance of that because of what he did for their sin. But at its heart, the gospel is a story, and it's the story of Jesus Christ. But there are other considerations as we're thinking about sharing the gospel with others and thinking about how stories can play into that. Uh, one of those uh, aspects is the fact that stories can help us build a connection. And I'm, I'm all over the place with my 
with my clicker tonight. Okay. I think I'm just missing a... Okay, there we go. All right, so stories can build a connection. We've talked about this before, but stories are very human, all right? They're, they're all about people, and so often they can be a great connection point with people. And as we're trying to address people with the gospel, a story can sometimes be a powerful tool to get us both on the same page and get us headed in the right direction. Again, we see um, scriptural examples of this. So later on in, in chapter 17 of Acts, Paul is in the city of Athens. And his, uh, his audience this time is much different from the audience he had in Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, he was speaking to a group of Jews in the synagogue. Here in Athens, he's speaking to a group of philosophers. They've gathered together. They like to hear new philosophical theories. They're looking for some brilliant oratory or some incredible logic. They want to see if Paul has something worth listening to, something that will make them think. Well, Paul doesn't begin with brilliant oratory or striking logic. Paul begins with a very simple little personal story. He tells them about an experience that he had as he came into their city. Ye men of Athens, he says, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Now, even intellectual philosophers are suckers for a story, especially because Paul is talking about their city and something he experienced in their city. So he's got their attention. He's saying, look, I, I came here, and this is what I saw. I, I was walking through, and I, I, was, I was looking at all the places where you guys worship, and I found this altar, and it had this inscription. It's not, a, it's not an earth-shattering story. It's nothing crazy. But he's built this connection with these people in Athens. And then he makes use of that. He connects that to the message that he's truly there to share with these words. Him declare I unto you. And then he begins to share the truth that leads, him, leads to introducing them to Jesus Christ as he begins to share with them the reality of the true God. But he uses just this simple little anecdote from as he came into the city of Athens to kind of get them all on the same page and get them to the point where they're ready to, to begin to listen to what he has to share with them. Stephen, also in Acts 7, makes use of a story to connect with his audience and prepare them to hear his gospel message. Uh, we've already considered this chapter, but in Acts 7, he took his Jewish listeners on a tour of their own history, showing how it all led up to Jesus Christ, and how their rejection of Jesus Christ was, in truth, them resisting the Holy Spirit. But again, he's using a story to connect with his audience, to get them on the same page. He knows that these Jews who are listening to them are going to be familiar with Jewish history. They're going to be interested in Jewish history. They're going to be with him as he shares this story which prepares them to hear the gospel message that he has to share with them. So a story can help establish a personal connection. Paul connecting with the Athenians by talking about something in their city. Stephen connecting with devout Jews through their history. Um, a story can garner attention. It can serve as a great opener to lead from 
the experiential realities of our world to the spiritual realities of the gospel. It's interesting because we see that the gospel messengers in the book of Acts tailored their messages to their audience. Now, they always kept Christ at the center. At the end of the day, it was always about Jesus Christ. It was always the story of Christ. At its heart, this, this gospel is not changing. Nothing about the actual message, the actual truth is changing. But the way that they presented it, the way that they tried to connect with their hearers, the way that they, they spoke, the words that they used, differed from time to time. They tried to appeal to things that they knew would be meaningful to those they were addressing. And they used stories and illustrations accordingly. Now, for us, the same, I think we ought to consider the same things. As we're sharing the gospel with someone, it's not just going to be, okay, I've got, my, I've got my presentation memorized, and I just have to shoot through my presentation and we're good. We need to think about who we're talking to, and we need to seek to, to connect with them, communicate with them in a way that they're best going to understand. Uh, use illustrations and use stories that are going to be of interest to them and are going to be things that they most readily are going to connect with. And sometimes we can be uncomfortable with that sort of idea because we can think, when we start talking about tailoring, tailoring, tailoring our message to our audience, we think, no, I'm, I'm, that means I'm messing with the truth. No, 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 no. We're just talking about delivery. We're talking about the means by which we're seeking to communicate the truth. We're not talking about changing the gospel. We're not talking about saying, oh, I'll, I'll leave this part out because it might be offensive to this person. We're just talking about what is going to be a way for me to personally connect with this person? What is going to be something that will resonate with them, that they'll understand, that can, can help be that, that segue into the gospel? And I think that we do see these, exam these examples uh, throughout the book of Acts of the, the servants of God seeking to do just that. In, in 1 Corinthians 9, <clears throat> when Paul said, I made all things to all men that I might by all means save some, and this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you, I think he meant several things by that, but I do think that this area specifically is part of what he meant. That he was tailoring his message to his audience. He spoke to Jews understanding what Jews already understood. He spoke to Gentiles knowing what Gentiles would understand. Um, we saw examples of that in Acts 17. The beginning speaking to Jews, at the end speaking to Gentiles. Um, but something for us to consider. But as we think about trying to share the gospel in a way that's understandable, in a way that's going to connect with people, in a way that they're, they're, is going to resonate with them, that brings us to the next uh, item to consider, and that's stories that illustrate the gospel. We've talked about using stories as illustrations, and specifically in the area of the gospel, they can aid in bringing to light, they're on the um, far side, over there. Sorry, I should have told you where they were. Thanks. Stories can aid in bringing to light the spiritual truths that we're seeking to convey. So they can take an abstract reality and they can express it in concrete terms. 
some of those pictures that we may use come straight from Scripture. Um, so consider with me a couple of Bible pictures. Uh, Jesus used several illustrations, several pictures to, um, to serve, to, to explain the truth of the gospel in his ministry. Uh, one example is in Matthew 7, in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus told his listeners there, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to, this, leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. So, he uses what to us is, is a familiar picture at this point. It's been used many times in sharing the gospel, this picture of the, the broad way and the narrow way. And he's expressing the fact that there are these two ways. There's a choice to be made. One way, faith in Christ, leads to eternal life. While rejection of Christ, which is the broad way, it's the easy way to go, it's the way that more people are taking, leads to eternal destruction. Another example of Jesus using a story that illustrated uh, gospel realities is in Matthew 22. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which, were bid, which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. So Jesus uses this story uh, to illustrate several things about the gospel. He uses it as a picture of the Jews and of their rejection of the messengers of God, including Christ himself. He makes it clear how God will respond to that rejection. He also made it clear that the Jews' inflated view of themselves was unfounded. See, the Jews kind of had this idea, we've got a monopoly on spiritual things. We have a monopoly on God. The, 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 the truth is for us and us alone. The Jews have the truth and all the other nations don't know salvation. They don't know God. They don't know the truth. Well, in this story, Jesus illustrates the fact that salvation is for all. Jesus said the invitation in this story, was going out to as many as they found, both bad and good. As these servants are going out inviting people to this wedding, they're not saying, ah, I think you'll make the cut, but you won't. They're inviting everyone. And Jesus is making this point, the invitation goes out to all. It's interesting to me because he says that they which were bidden were not worthy. But then they're going out and inviting everyone, both bad and good. So where does the worthiness enter in? Well, what he's talking about is it's 
their response to the invitation that decides whether or not they're going to be a part of the wedding, whether or not they are worthy. It's not because they've done something to, to deserve this honor. So Jesus is illustrating all of these truths that the gospel invitation is open to all. He goes on and he shares more gospel truth in another part of this story, continuing on. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now that latter portion of the story is a picture of someone who tries to come to God on his own terms. So the guest tried to attend the wedding in his own clothes instead of wearing the clothes that had been provided for him for the wedding. He decided, I'm going to do this my way. I'm going to wear what I want to wear rather than the clothes the king gave me to wear. And Jesus uses this as a picture of of those who try to establish their own righteousness, as another portion of scripture says, instead of coming in faith to Christ. They are freely offered the gift of Christ, but if they will reject that and try to do it their own way, there's no, God is not going to receive that. It's not going to be good enough. So this story is full of pictures of gospel realities. And this is just one example. There are many more, especially from the uh, ministry of Christ. So there are these Bible pictures, these Bible stories that can serve as wonderful illustrations of the gospel. And those sorts of illustrations can be really helpful in illuminating uh, spiritual truth to the minds and hearts of your hearers by providing pictures of the spiritual realities being conveyed. So many times we can go to scripture, we can find stories there that can be wonderfully helpful But not all illustrative stories are found in Scripture. Um, There is a place for extra-biblical illustrations in our communication, uh, not least of all in sharing the gospel. Um, There's some version of the fictional story I'm about to share with you in just about every uh, gospel-sharing system that I've come across. Um, So often when you're trying to share the gospel with someone and you're trying to explain the character of God. So the fact that God can be both loving and just at the same time. That's something that people can really struggle with. So imagine a murderer standing before a judge. The evidence has been presented. Witnesses have testified. And this judge is being called on to pass down a verdict. To everyone present, The facts are clear. No one doubts that this person is guilty of the murder of which they've been accused. But this judge is a nice person, so despite the evidence, he decides to declare the murderer not guilty and let him go free. How would you respond to such a verdict? Well, surely you would demand that that judge be removed for such a blatant miscarriage of justice. But what if the person being accused of murder were that judge's own brother or the judge's son? 
his love for his own family member would would mean declaring them not guilty, right? After all, he loves them so deeply, he would have no choice but to say not guilty, right? Well, no. Just because he loved the defendant would not mean that the judge should just ignore what is just and right. Even the most sincere love doesn't just cancel out justice. And so it is with God. It's foolish when we argue that he's loving, so surely he wouldn't judge our sins so severely. Now that simple judge illustration can help to illuminate the foolishness of that argument. Of the argument that God, that a loving God could never uh, judge people in that way. So stories can be really helpful in shedding light on the spiritual truths of the gospel. Now finally, I just want to consider one more vital thing um, when it comes to stories and evangelism. And that is telling your story. A personal testimony of salvation is a really powerful thing. We talked last week about how a story can really bring to light what it looks like to respond to a certain truth. A personal testimony works that way with the gospel. Um, And we see this modeled in the ministry of Paul. We consider at the beginning, Acts 26, where Paul shares the gospel with King Agrippa. Um, He's recorded doing, sharing the gospel a second time, or actually a previous time in Acts 22, um, by sharing his testimony. So in Acts 22, he's addressing an angry crowd. He's just been dragged from this chaotic crowd by Roman soldiers, and he asks the Roman captain's permission to speak to the crowd. And so he turns, he addresses this mob that was trying to kill him just moments ago. And where does Paul turn? What is he going to say to this crowd? Well, he tells his story. He tells them about that light from heaven on the road to Damascus. He tells them about... Ananias coming to him in this city about the divine task that was given to him. He talks about hearing from God that he he needs to leave because his message is going to be rejected. He talks about God telling him that his job will be to go to the Gentiles with the message of Christ. Now he gets to that point and immediately the crowd goes crazy. They don't want to hear about the gospel going to the Gentiles. And uh, they begin to call for Paul's execution. But though his message is cut short, Paul is able to share with them the seed of gospel truth in the form of his own testimony. Even in a seemingly impossible situation where you'd say there's no way he's going to get any kind of message across to these people. He is able to as he shares his personal testimony. So a personal testimony can be really, really powerful for a number of reasons, but I want to mention two specifically tonight. First, a personal testimony can help to call for a verdict. I was just a young kid when I came to Christ. I grew up in a solid Christian home. We attended church faithfully. We were always involved in outreach and activities and most anything that was going on at the church. But I remember one night, Uh, My brother and I were in a bunk bed. He was on the top bunk, I was on the bottom bunk. Um, And we were talking. And I don't remember how exactly, but we started talking about eternity. And I got scared. 
my brother kept telling me that I needed to get saved. And I remember crying in my bed, and my dad came to see what was the matter, and he and I went out to the living room, and he talked to me about Jesus Christ. He talked about his payment for my sin. He talked about my need to come to Jesus and give my life to him, to trust in him completely to save me. But it was late, so we finished the conversation the next day. But as a result of that talk with my dad, I reached an important understanding. It was good that my parents knew God and brought us to church. It was good that I knew the Bible. And it was good that I wasn't a totally horrible person from most people's perspective. But all that didn't really matter when it came to my own relationship with God. I needed Jesus to be my Savior. The payment that he made when he died on that cross needed to be applied to me. The, resurre the resurrection life that he displayed when he rose from the dead needed to be given to me. It wasn't about anything I had done or could do. It wasn't something my parents had done or could do. It was simply clinging to what Jesus had done for me. And that's what I did that day. I was only five years old, but even my young, simple-minded self could cling to Jesus. And I placed my faith in him that day. And from that point up to today and forever, he is my Savior. Now, my testimony is very simple. But do you see how a testimony calls for a verdict? If it's shared well, a personal testimony illustrates someone responding to that call of God to come to Christ. So you see me coming to Christ, and you get a picture of what that means. You see that it was a personal thing. It was something between me and God. You see that it was a simple thing. Even a little kid could do it. A personal testimony can, in itself, be a call for a verdict. It, it can easily open up the doors to say, ask the question, is there ever a time in your life when you've done that? But a personal testimony can also serve another function. It can help to overcome objections. Now, in my testimony, I counter a couple of excuses. One, the excuse, I'm a Christian because my parents are Christians. Or, I'm a Christian because I grew up in church. Or one of my favorites, I've always been a Christian. You ever heard somebody say one of those things? Mm -hmm. Well, in my testimony, I, I uh, reject all of those things. Because I'm not a Christian because any of those things are true of me, even though they're all true of me. I'm a Christian because I came to Christ personally and placed my faith in him. Also, uh, my testimony counters the objection that the gospel is complicated or hard to understand. After all, I could understand well enough to place my faith in Christ even though I was a little kid. Now, perhaps your personal testimony naturally addresses other objections or excuses that people might have. And often it can be helpful for us to tell that story. Uh, perhaps you're from a similar background as someone else, and they're having trouble. Uh, there's there's, there's a, a wall that they've built between them and God, and you sharing your testimony can help to tear that down. Um, perhaps it could be, 
that it would be helpful to share someone else's personal testimony that applies to that. Uh, I could give a lot of examples for this. One of my teachers in college was an atheist before he came to Christ. Um, I wasn't. But if I were speaking to someone who um, is an atheist, sharing his personal testimony could be a help to them to open their eyes and to help tear down some of those obstacles. Um, there are biblical examples to consider, too. Uh, one that people often use is the personal testimony of the thief on the cross. Uh, it's a story that's been used by many people to op help overcome the objection that baptism is necessary for salvation. Well, look at the personal testimony of this man. Uh, there's, there are testimonies from Scripture that can be helpful as well. Um, I personally love the conversion story of Adoniram Judson. It's an amazing picture of the emptiness of intellectualism and how it offers no peace in the end. It's, it's a chilling story. It's a stark warning to those who would try to brush off eternity or laugh at religion. If you don't know the story of Adoniram Judson coming to Christ, you need to look it up. I'm not going to take the time to share it tonight. Um, if you don't want to do the homework I gave you, you can do that for homework instead. <laughs> So a personal testimony can be really helpful um, in helping someone understand what it means to come to Christ, in calling for them to make a decision, and in helping to overcome those objections. Now much more could be said about this subject of using stories to evangelize, but I hope that this, to some degree, whets your appetite to more effectively share uh, this greatest story, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm at my grandparents' in-ground pool, and life is good. I'm worry-free. I feel unbreakable. There are lots of reasons I love visiting my grandparents in the summer, and the pool is definitely pretty high on that list. Even when the water is bone-chillingly cold on a mild New England day, my brothers and sisters and I are still going to dive in and, uh, and swim all over the place. Um, we'll dive for pool rings, we'll, we'll float on the float, splash water at each other, smack each other with pool noodles, all that good stuff. Well, on this particular day, it's pretty warm, the sun's shining, it's a great day to be at the pool. I'm still working on the whole swimming thing, so I just splash around in the shallow end. But this day is so beautiful. The possibility seems so amazing that in an inexplicable lapse of sanity, I decide to dive right into the deep end. I don't know what was going through my mind when I walked over and jumped in. Maybe I thought I would suddenly learn to swim in an instant. Maybe I thought I'd really been able to swim all this time and I just needed to spread my wings and fly. Maybe I thought, or maybe I didn't think. Maybe that was my problem. But there I am, jumping into the deep end, and as one would predict, I did not fare well. I, I go below the water, I struggle, I thrash, but I do not swim. All the confidence I had in my own ability, just moments before, melts away in sheer panic. I'm going to drown in my grandparents' pool. Thankfully, my brother acts quickly. He swims over, he holds my head above the water, Another family member jumps in moments later and helps me back to the edge of the pool, 
and relief and shame flood over me as I catch my breath and ask the inevitable question, what in the world was I thinking? Why did I think I could handle that on my own? Why did I think I could make it without the help of someone stronger and more capable than myself? But I was also flooded with gratitude. I was thankful for my brother. His quick actions helped to save my life. It was because of him that I didn't sink right to the bottom of that pool's deep end without help and without hope. And you know, it's kind of like salvation. A lot of people think they can handle it. They think they can take care of their own sin. They think they can secure for themselves a good eternity without the help of someone stronger and more capable. I only hope that it's not too late when they finally come face to face with the fact that they can't do it. They do need help. They need to be rescued. They need Jesus Christ. You know, we're not promised success, but as we clearly communicate the gospel, by God's grace, we may see the stories we share find their marks in the hearts of those with whom we speak. And it's always a wonderful thing to think about. Who will we see in heaven because of the message that we shared? And I hope that tonight has given you a taste for how stories might be able to serve a part in that in helping you to be a faithful witness for the Lord. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.